Let us not lift our souls to another. Lord, I pray that this morning too, just as we come to, our, to your word, Lord, that you'd purify our hearts, God, that you, you do a, a, a redemptive work in purifying us, your church. Father, set us apart for your purpose, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, so it's been, it's been a couple weeks since we've been in 2 Peter. Um, and so let me remind you of some thoughts where we closed off with chapter 1 just to set some of the groundwork as we come into chapter 2 and what Peter's line of thought is and where he's going. And I would say this, if there's kind of just one word that connects the end of chapter 1 to the start of what we're about to discuss this morning, it is the word prophecy. Peter kind of put this emphasis at the close of chapter 1 that God's people, that the church needed to pay heed to the prophetic word as their source of illumination, as their source of light, as their source of teaching. If you were here a couple weeks back, you might remember that uh, I presented this situation or this choice or this dilemma to you in my message that week, a hypothetical situation, and it it was this. So let me just do it again because I think it kind of sets the groundwork for where we want to go this morning. If you were given a choice and your choice was this, you could zoom back in time And join Peter and John and James and go up to the top of the Mount of Transfiguration and watch that whole thing happen. See Jesus in all of his glory. See him shining, his clothes transformed. Moses with him. Elijah with him. Listen to them talk about Jesus' impending death. And and just take that whole thing in. Or, the second choice is this. Have the Old Testament. So you get the Old Testament, or you get to go and have this great experience and see this thing. What would you choose? Well, Peter tells us in, in, in the first chapter, you should choose having the word. Because he says, having the prophetic word is more sure than that experience. It's, and, and he was there. Why could he say that? Because experiences fade, but the word of God lives, for, lives forever. And, you know, we might say, you know, if experiences left a lasting impression, then all we have to do is look at the history of the children of Israel who were led in the Exodus out from the hand of uh, the Egyptian pharaohs and from slavery and all the miracles and experiences and things that they got to uh, see and experience about God. Then you'd think that they would never complain against God, and yet they were a generation who complained so much against God and rebelled against God in the midst of seeing all these experiences that that first generation was left out from entering the promised land. Their, their experiences left them with craving for more. And so, you know, you might say the, the impression of experiences fades, but the scripture tells us God's word dwells and lasts forever. And so when you have the choice between some sort of spiritual experience or a Bible study, choose the Bible study because that's the groundwork for something that lasts forever. And so uh, let's read here just where Peter wrapped up last verse of chapter one. He said this, verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but man spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so 
just this pic, the picture here is that these prophets, these men being carried along, it's like, it's like a, a ship with its sails up being driven by the spirit as they uh, spoke from God, as the Holy Spirit led them. Now where Peter is about to go is to tell us this, that wherever God sends his true messengers with his words, there you will also find the devil sending his own messengers to seduce and to deceive God's people and especially to deceive people about the redemptive work of the cross of Jesus Christ. And Peter's going to tell us that men who do that bring a swift destruction on themselves. Even though they may be appearing to prosper for a while, they bring a destruction upon themselves. So let's check it out. Verse 1 says this. The false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. You know, when you read the pages of the Old Testament, especially I think of the historical books of 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles and, and even in Samuel a bit, uh, you always find alongside of the true prophet, the voice of a false prophet, don't you? I mean, you see these pictures of these kings and the true prophet is coming and speaking to them and, and, and proclaiming the need for a rebellious generation to repent and to turn their hearts towards God and that God is going to bring judgment and giving all of these warnings. And there right alongside is always the false prophet saying, no, everything's okay. You don't have to worry about it. God's going to pour out his blessing and favor and peace. And instead of leading people to having a humble and contrite heart before God, a repentant heart before God, the, this, these false prophets gave uh, a false sense of confidence regarding coming judgments or coming armies or wars or whatever. I think of Elijah when he faced 400 prophets of Baal who were leading the people astray. Or if you read the book of Ezekiel or even Jeremiah, there you see the, the false prophets at work proclaiming the opposite message as God's men and doing so in God's name. And so throughout history, the, uh, throughout the history of God's people, where his word is truly spoken, there you will always have alongside the voice of the false prophet. Oh, remember that th this is Peter's swan song. This is Peter's his last letter. Uh, he is sharing with God's people his concern that they need to be aware of this reality as he is preparing for his own personal exodus to depart uh, for heaven. And he is warning the church that in the same way that the nation of Israel had these false prophets, so the church will have in their midst false teachers. Now, unfortunately, they don't, you know, they don't identify themselves. False teachers don't come in and dressed up like wolves and saying things like, I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow your church down, okay? That's not their game. Their game is secrecy. That is their M.O., uh, they dress in sheep's, sheep's clothing, but they go to work amongst the people of God and they secretly bring in destructive heresies. Now the word heresy obviously means that these teachers will introduce beliefs and opinions that are contrary to what we as a church would call orthodox, the truths that we're built upon. But it also means, that word heresy also means that they, that they promote dissensions by just giving different opinions, you know? 
Man, can you believe those church leaders did that? Can you believe that pastor said that? Whatever it is, they just present opinions to people that promote dissension. Peter says, they even deny the master who bought them. You know, smooth-tongued false teachers seldom deny that Jesus taught people and that he was a great teacher, but they do love to deny Jesus who bought. They'll honor Jesus who taught, but not the Jesus who bought. Because the devil hates the doctrine of the cross. He hates the reality of the cross. You know, every religious group outside of uh, Christianity, true Christianity, heralds Jesus Christ as this great prophet or as a great teacher, and he was. But they usually, if not always, deny the redemptive work of Jesus Christ for the human race. They deny the work of the cross for people given over to sin. They deny the ransoming, ransoming power of Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. And they teach that you need to add to the cross. You know, a couple years back, uh, there were some Mormon missionaries in town and they came knocking at my door. And so we sat down and I offered them coffee, but they didn't want any. So they had water. And, um, and uh, I said, hey, just tell me, can you just tell me what's the gospel like, what is the gospel? If I didn't know what the gospel was, tell me what the gospel is. And they began to just tell me about man's need for a savior and sin and Christ came and died on the cross and he was raised from the dead. And if you believe on the Lord and add good works, you'll be saved. And they, whoa, 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 hold on. You just added something right at the end there. You were all good until we got to the end. And then we, we got into this discussion, you know, minimizing the work of Jesus Christ. And that's what uh, false teachers and false religious groups do. You know, Jesus was a great prophet. He was an amazing teacher, but they deny the complete work of the cross for our salvation. But you need to know this. That you were ransomed from the futile ways that you inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, a lamb without spot or blemish. Jesus was slain and by his blood, he ransomed people from God for God. From every tribe, from every nation, from every tongue. He's making us into a, a holy nation, a royal priesthood to serve God. And the scripture says we're going to reign on the earth with him. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As the scripture says, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 20 says, you were bought with a price. So you honor God with your body. You were bought with a price. So you do not become bond servants of men. See, we, you were bought. Jesus purchased us with his blood. And these false teachers want to minimize that purchasing power of Jesus Christ. I mean, consider again for a moment, the account in the gospels of Jesus transfiguration going up onto that mountain, being transformed before Peter and, and John and James into all of his glory. The miracle of that whole story is this. 
that Jesus came down off the mountain. That's the miracle. Normal for him was what happened on top of the mountain. The miracle was that he descended down the mountain and he set his sights on Jerusalem where he would give his life as a ransom for us. You and I lost in our sin. And you cannot get a glimpse of the humility of the cross until you attempt to to grasp the glory and the holiness and the majesty of our Savior, Jesus Christ. I love that we sang that song, the Revelation song this morning. I didn't know that was on the list. I thought, wow, that is perfect. See, where the cross is undermined, there you will find a low view of the holiness and the consecration and the majesty and the glory of Jesus Christ. He descended. He descended. You know, history tells us that the Romans crucified thousands and thousands of people. You know, they crucified the citizens of Jerusalem during the sieging of that city from 67 to 8067 to 70 till there was no trees left, no wood left to crucify people. I think the numbers were the numbers were somewhere in the 300 to 900 people a day they were crucifying. And so I just think Well, what makes Jesus different from the thousands of people that the Romans crucified? And the difference is this. He was God in the flesh. The difference was that Jesus was glorious and holy and perfect and sinless and without blemish and without spot. The righteous lamb of God come to set us free from our sin. To get the the depth of which Jesus descended, you have to consider the height from which he came. You know, Isaiah, when he is being refashioned for ministry, as we read in Isaiah uh, chapter six, it wasn't a vision of the Trinity singing Kumbaya that he saw. Okay. It, It was Isaiah had a vision of the throne of God and he saw Jesus high and lifted up. And the creatures that he saw before the throne, he tells us that they had six wings each. With two, they covered their face. With two, they covered their feet. With two, they they continued to fly. And with reverent worship and with their voices and with the host of heaven, they sang, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And what did Isaiah do? He cried out, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm I'm lost. I am a man with unclean lips. I I live in the midst of a people with unclean lips and my eyes have seen the Lord. See, we have to begin with the nature of Jesus Christ, the son of God, holy, perfect, righteous, glorious, sinless. And only then does the cross make sense. Only then does grace begin to become so awesome and alive to our hearts. And, and false teachers will always reduce the nature of Jesus to merely human. So that they can eliminate the need for the cross. And, and weaken or dumb down our perception of what sin is. And the Lord promises that those who do such will have a swift destruction. Peter says in verse 2. And many will follow their sensuality. And b- because of them. The way of truth will be blasphemed. 
The impact of these false teachers and the consequences is, is that unfortunately their, their influence will be almost like an infection at times amongst the people of God. Many Christians follow their destructive ways and God's name is dishonored and disgraced as, as believers live in this sensuality of the, the false teachers. Verse 3 says, And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. See, false teachers are really always interested in one thing, money, making money. They themselves are greedy. They're experts in greed. And so they play on the greed of others. They preach a gospel of self-satisfaction. You know, the message that Jesus taught And his gospel teaching was this, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself. But false teachers play on our heart's greed and our our want of things, our our desire to be self-satisfied. And their whole racket is based on just exploiting people with deceptive words. And their condemnation From long ago, Peter says, it's not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. You know, one of the ways that God allows his judgment to work in this world is by allowing people to continue in sin. One of the ways that he judges the false teacher is that he allows that teacher to just keep preaching what is false. Do you remember what it is that leads us to repentance? It's the kindness of God. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. So by leaving someone in sin, that is the wrath of God at work. That is his judgment at work. It's his wrath that allows a false teacher to keep going and they suffer for it. In fact, Peter's going to give us three historical examples of judgment that came on on false teachers. Let's check it out. Or or false prophets or false situations. Verse 4. He says this, for if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. So the first example Peter gives us is the example of the wicked angels that are held in chains of darkness. Uh, I, I wish that, you know, I wish that Peter went in a little more depth about this whole story, right? I mean, there's, there's a lot of mystery to what we read here. Uh, You know, I don't understand how all of it works, but some of the wicked evil angels are in chains. They're, they're held in hell. And there are others who are active at work doing the demonic work of Satan. You know, I wish the Bible told us a little bit more about, you know, Satan and about Lucifer and about uh, the angels rebellion in heaven. I mean, there's just not a lot of details, but it's certainly alluded to in the scriptures that, That when Satan was cast from heaven, you know, there's this picture that his tail swept away a third of the angels taken in the rebellion. But it says here they're they're held in hell. That word, that word translated hell is literally the word Tartarus. Uh, It's considered a a certain section of hell, the lower part of hell. Of hell, And in Greek mythology, it was the lowest place in hell that was reserved for rebellious gods. And so whatever Tartarus is, I mean, we don't know. What we can tell is this, is, is it's a special section of that place 
where sinful, rebellious angels are held in pits of chain, in, with chains of gloomy darkness. And so, yeah, there's a lot of mystery there, isn't there? There's a lot of rabbit trails in this passage. I'm not going to try to run down them this morning and just try to stick to the main part of the passage. Lots we could try to figure out, but the point is this. The point of what, in the midst of all the things that you could try to figure out from this one verse, the point that Peter is making is this. God judges rebellion. And he will not spare those who reject his will. If he judged the angels, who in many aspects, uh, angels are higher than us, glorious beings dwelling in the presence of the Lord already, if he will judge them, then he will definitely judge rebellious men. Here's another example Peter gives. Verse 5. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. You know, at the time of Noah, the scripture tells us that man had become so evil that every thought and intention of his heart was only towards evil continually. For 120 years, while Noah built that ark and preached the righteousness of God, God preserved him in that wicked and perverse generation, but God brought, God brought a flood of destruction upon the wicked and the ungodly. Because God will indeed judge those who reject his truth. Here's another example. Comfy passage, eh? Verse 6. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes... He condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the, un the ungodly. You know, the sin of Sodom was very grave. The outcry to the Lord against those cities, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and there was even other cities included in that, was very great. The men were wicked sinners in those, in those communities. Uh, you know, the, the flagrant sin of Sodom and the, and the other cities there was, was unnatural sex. That's what it was. That's what the scripture says. The sodomy, homosexual behavior, which is clearly condemned in the scripture. And in spite of the fact that, you know, Abraham interceded for those cities, in spite of the fact that Lot, a righteous man, was there, in spite of the fact that, that Lot even uh, gave a warning as he was heading out of the city to them, uh, warning the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, they, they perished in fire and brimstone and were destroyed. I, I don't like the word extinction in that verse. It's the Greek word described, it's the Greek word that describes what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah and it's, it's actually the word catastrophe. Catastrophe. It means a sudden overthrow, a sudden destruction. And so God judged the angels who sinned. God judged the ancient world before the flood. God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. So, you know, you can, you can be in heaven like the angels. You could be prosperous like those cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. Whatever it is, God brings judgment on those who reject his righteousness. And three examples of certain judgment. I mean, the point is this. The Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous. He knows how to keep the unrighteous for the time of punishment until his judgment comes. But the Lord also knows how to rescue the godly in trials. You know, Peter already told us how the Lord delivered Noah. I mean, imagine Noah 
Noah lived and he raised his kids in a world where people were not God fearing, where there were no other believers, but the God preserved Noah and his entire family and even provided wives for his sons, believing wives. God guarded his home from the pollutions of the world. He tucked that family away safe in the ark when the judgment came. Or consider Lot, verse 7. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as a righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormented in his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. You know, Lot's kind of a weird character in scripture, isn't he? Kind of like, what's, what's the deal with Lot, man? Why did he choose to go live in those cities? And what was that all about? But we read here that in God's eyes, Lot was a righteous man. And, and I read his story and I kind of think, well, it's, it's hard to see how he was righteous. But you know, God saw his heart. God saw that he was a man distressed in his soul about the conduct of his city. He was distressed in his soul about the conduct of the people around him. His soul was tormented. And yes, he, he, he failed to separate himself he, he lived in the midst of the culture and there was, there was a failure in separation because something happened. He lost his family in the midst of it. You know, two daughters escaped, but you read that story and you'll notice that, saw, that Lot had more than just two daughters. He had at least four daughters. And his wife perished. His, he lost his family. And then his two daughters that lived, uh, their lives went another direction as well, the scripture tells us. And so Lot, the Lord delivered Lot, but he lost everything. He lost his family because of his association, his association with those wicked cities. And so, you know, as we read this, we see there, there's a judge. God is storing up a judgment for the wicked. But Peter is also wanting to communicate to us uh, that just, we would be reassured that when that day comes, that God will also save his people. He'll save us. He will save us. See, look at verse nine. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the righteous under punishment until the day of judgment. You know, I just think about the time in which we live. Our present age is a lot like the days of Noah. It's also a lot like the days of Lot. You know, we, we look at the church in our culture and, you know, the church in a lot of ways has abandoned. I, I was really convicted as I studied this this week. I, that's why I just sang that song, you know, um, give us clean hands, give us pure hearts. Because in many ways, believers have, you know, abandoned their place of separation in this world, their, their place of being holy and set apart under the purposes of God. You know, the, the church has in many places a weak testimony. Sinners don't really believe that there's a judgment coming. Society is full of immorality, especially the sin that Sodom was famous for. It appears that, you know, God has slumbered, he's unconcerned with the rebellious sinners. But one day judgment will come. That's the warning from Peter. And God's people, as weak as they are, 
need to know that God will deliver us from judgment by his grace and by his mercy. You know, God could not judge Sodom until Lot was removed. God could not pour out the waters of the flood until he shut Noah and his family into the ark. And God will not send his wrath on the world until he takes his people out and takes us to heaven. We're not appointed for wrath, but so that we should live together with the Lord. that's, That's our purpose and what God is for us. Verse 10 says this, Speaking again of the false teachers and the judgment, he says, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority, bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. So he just, you know, these are ungodly people who do not live by the spirit. They are living for the flesh, for the appetites and lusts of their flesh. They're bold. They're willful. They blaspheme those in authority. They blaspheme the glorious ones. They despise authority. It reminds me of the the story that uh, Jude tells us about. That when Moses died, there was a dispute over his body. Now, we don't know why. The scripture doesn't tell us why there was a dispute over the body of Moses. But the scripture does tell us that the Lord took Moses' body and he hid it away. And nobody knows where he's buried. And there's some reasons why... uh, That could be the book of revelation tells us that there'll be two witnesses during the great tribulation. And many believe that those witnesses will come and they'll preach the gospel over the face of the earth. And, and, and many believe that Moses is one of those two witnesses. And so God tucked away his body. Satan wanted his body. So for whatever reason, and the Lord tucked him away. But Jude tells us that the archangel, uh, Michael was there during the dispute over Moses's body and that he did not raise his voice against Satan, but he said, Satan, the Lord rebuke you. See, even an archangel knew not to blaspheme or, or sorry, to speak a word against uh, Satan. He just said, the Lord rebuke you. He, he left that work to the Lord to do. And you know, that's a good example. When you're, when you're dealing with the devil, just the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Lord rebuke you. See, the false teachers despise all spiritual authorities and their doom is sealed. Verse 12. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. You know, since these men function in the flesh and not in the spirit, Peter says they're like animals. They are like animals. They're they're fit for destruction. They're ignorant. They'll receive the wage that is their due. They'll, They'll be paid the wages of unrighteousness. Verse 14. They have eyes full of adultery. Insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the way of right, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain for wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. 
A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. And so these men, they're, they're, they're dangerous. Uh, they're corruptive in the presence uh, in the body of Christ. Not only did they deceive others, but they also deceived themselves. They have eyes full of adultery. Uh, it's, a, it's a picture both sexually and spiritually. They prey on unsteady people. They prey on unstable souls to join them. They exploit others to satisfy their own desires. Uh, again, sexually, financially, spiritually. They're experts in greed. Peter pulls out this example from the Old Testament of Balaam. He says they're like Balaam. They're like that man Balaam. You remember his story? He's kind of another mysterious guy. Peter, man, he like pulls out all these weird, he knew the Old Testament, pulls out all these weird stories from the Old Testament. Balaam is a mysterious character. He was a Gentile prophet who tried to curse the Jewish people. The story is this. While the nation of Israel was wandering in the desert and getting ready to go um, to the promised land, they came to the land of the Moabites And Balak, the king of the Moabites, was afraid of Israel. And so he turned to this man, Balaam, a prophet, and he asked him to curse the people of Israel. And so Balaam, uh, as you read the story, he, he knew the Lord and the Lord spoke to him. And so he prayed and he asked the Lord and the Lord said, no, don't do it. Those are my people. And so Balaam said to King Balak, sorry, I can't curse them. They're God's people. Not, I'm not going with you to do it. So Balak sends another delegation to him with more money and with, you know, more prestigious leaders and princes. And, and, uh, they, they promise Balak lots of dough, gold, riches, position, all those different things. And Balaam knew the truth. He knew uh, the will of God. And yet he deliberately abandoned what was right because he was seduced by those riches He's a perfect example of what Peter's talking about here. And from the outset, you know, God told Balaam not to help that king. And at first he, he obeyed. And then they sent those, those extra messengers and the more princes and promised the more money and honor. And he decided, you know, maybe I'll just pray about this one more time. You know that prayer? Well, God, are you sure? And, uh, you know, God tested Balaam and he permitted him to go. With those men. Wasn't God's perfect will. It was his permissive will. He allowed it to happen. To see what would, what would go on. And what the prophet would do. And Balaam jumped at the chance for money. To curse God's people. And when he started to go astray. God rebuked him. Through the mouth of his donkey. It's a great story. It's in Numbers. Chapters 20, 20, 20 to 23. Somewhere in there. And you know it's just remarkable. The animal spoke and rebuked this man as an angel stood in his way about to kill him. But, you know, God allowed him to go and Balaam went. And each time he went to curse God's people, God turned it into a blessing and he was not able to curse them. He wasn't able to curse them. But in the midst of it, although he couldn't curse them, he counseled the Moabite king. And he said, look, I can't curse the people, but here's how you can get them. Invite them to your homes. Invite them to come to your feasts and eat with you. Allow your daughters to seduce those men. 
And in doing so, you will lead them away from worshiping the one true God, and they will worship your God, and he will turn in ju- their God will turn in judgment on them. And that's exactly what happened. You know, they were just friendly neighbors, the Moabites and the Israelites. But the Israelites allowed them to set up their altars and make their sacrifices and do their things, and they compromised, and they joined in the worship of the Moabites. And God had to discipline his people and thousands died. And so, you know, Balaam, in his story, you, you, you see the, the two kind of aspects of what Peter's talking about. You know, financial greed and a, and a, a sensual lust that led God's people astray. He loved money and he led God's people into lustful sin so that he could get money. He was a man, you know, who could get messages from God And yet he led people away from God. Peter says, these false teachers that are like Balaam, they're they're like springs without water. Empty. No no value. They're like clouds without rain. You know, what's what's a cloud without rain? It's useless. We live on the Sunshine Coast. We know that. What's a cloud without rain? No. You know, in lots of places in the world, the farmers pray for clouds. Clouds. And when the cloud comes, they expect rain to come because they need it for their crop. I mean, you expect rain from a cloud. But these men, springs without water, clouds without rain, useless and empty. Verse 18. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. And so, you know, their, their, their message, the message of the false teachers is really void of any true spiritual content. E- even though they use big talk, even though they use big words, their real power is this. They, they appeal to people's sensual lusts. They appeal to that desire for self-satisfaction, the human flesh, greed and lust and all these things. Verse 19, they promise freedom. But they themselves are slaves of corruption. For for whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. See, they, they promise freedom, but there is no freedom in the pursuit of the flesh. Where is freedom found? Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That is where freedom is found. Freedom is found in the presence of Jesus Christ not in the pursuit of fulfilling the lust of the flesh. And so when we seek freedom in the wrong way, we become slaves of corruption. Let's read through the end of the chapter. Verse 20. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to have never known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. You know, we got this little puppy at home, right? (laughs) Got the dogs out. It's pretty gross. How they puke and go back to their vomit. Usually on the white carpet on the stairs. Uh, You know, the dog returns to its own vomit. And these false teachers, their nature as dogs 
is displayed in the fact that they'll go back. They go back to the vomit. It just exposes that they are dogs. They're like brute beasts. Uh, More animal than they are godly because they live for the flesh. You know, the dog, which is, is got rid of the corruption inside that and then pukes it up and goes back. You you just can't leave well enough alone. Like seriously, don't touch. Uh, You got to go sniff it again and eat it, lick it up. It's gross. Isn't it gross? It's gross just to think about it, but that's what they do. Their nature is dogs. And so Peter gives us these warnings. This is a rough chapter, man. It's a rough chapter. But the point of the chapter is this. The heart of the chapter is this. Look, God knows and will bring judgment. He knows those that do not belong to him. He knows those that are living in rebellion against him. And he knows how to preserve his own people. Like Noah. Like Lot. Like he desires to preserve you. There is a danger always for God's people that we would be seduced uh, by these false teachers. And so this is just a great chapter about earmarking some of the things and the ways in which they work. They appeal to your greed. They appeal to your sensual desires. They appeal uh, to the fleshly, self-satisfying lusts of the flesh. How much better to live for Christ than to be set free from those chains of corruption. For where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Stand with me this morning, Marcus. Come on up here. Lord, this is a tough chapter. Not comfy thinking about judgment. But Lord, it's appropriate. Peter had to warn. He had to warn God's people. And Lord, we, like people of generations past, are seduced, Lord, by the desires of our flesh, the lust of our eyes, the corruption of this world, those things press on us constantly. False teachers come and they they try to lead us astray. And Lord, we just desire to follow you. We make that our confession. Jesus, we, we recognize this morning that you are glorious, you're holy, you're righteous. You descended from your throne in heaven and you took on human flesh so that you might purchase us back from these things. And Lord, we don't want our lives to be given over to corruption. And so God, I ask that just for each one of us this morning, that you'd give us clean hands, that you'd give us pure hearts. Lord, whatever it is for each one of us this morning, we just repent of that worldly corruption. We ask that you'd forgive us our sins, Lord. We ask, God, that you would help us to live lives holy and consecrated and set apart to you. I pray, Lord, that like Lot, 
our hearts would be concerned about our community, about our nation, about our province. I pray, God, that we would be concerned about unrighteousness and that we would live for righteousness. I pray, God, that like Noah, you would preserve us in the midst of a wicked generation. I pray, God, that we would be preachers of righteousness. I pray, God, that you would preserve our families, that you would preserve our marriages, that you would preserve our children, God. God, we ask for our children that in the midst of this generation that we're raising them, that you would keep their hearts disposed towards you, God, leaning to you. And so, God, we... We ask that you would help us to live for righteousness, that you, would ask, that you would help us to live for truth. Jesus, we confess you as Lord this morning. We worship you. We thank you, Lord, that you left your glory and you descended into this chaotic world to bring order, to set us free. I thank you, Lord, that you are making us to be a kingdom of priests. And we're going to serve our God. We're going to rule and reign with you. And so, God, we thank you for preserving us. We cling tightly to you this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.